Turn with me in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. Scripture reading this morning is going to be Colossians chapter 1, verses 3 through 12. Colossians chapter 1, verses 3 through 12. If you're using one of the Pew Bibles, you will find Colossians chapter 1 on page 983. As we've already said many times this morning during the Advent season, we prepare our hearts to celebrate the birth of of Jesus, the Christ, the only Redeemer of God's elect. We often do that by meditating upon the work that He came to do. This year, our meditation will focus on Colossians 1. Beginning this morning, we will spend the four Sundays of Advent focusing on the goal, the nature, the source, and the condition of our redemption. We're going to focus on these things as they are put before us here in Paul's letter to the Colossians. So let us pray and ask for God's blessing upon our study here this morning. Father in heaven, according to your great mercy and steadfast love, cause your word of truth, the gospel of Jesus Christ, to bear fruit and grow among us this Advent season. Give me the grace to proclaim your gospel boldly, clearly, and faithfully. And give each of us the grace to hear it and to understand it, to receive it and to love it, and to obey it, bringing forth its fruit in our lives. Through your Spirit, may the peace of Christ rule in our hearts as his word dwells richly in our lives, so that we may be thoroughly equipped to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him. This we pray in Jesus' name, and for His name's sake. Amen. Colossians chapter 1, beginning at verse 3. This is the very Word of God. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it, is also, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share the inheritance of the saints in light. That is the reading of God's Word. In the beginning... 
When God had created the heavens and the earth, he saw everything that he had created, and behold, it was all very good. Adam and Eve, our first parents, had been created in God's image, and they had been placed in a garden of abundance, undefiled by sin and unknown by death. As such, they were perfectly able to glorify and enjoy their Creator without hindrance or deficit. But as you know, despite their blessed condition, our first parents did not continue in that estate wherein they had been created, but rather they sinned against God by eating the fruit of the tree of which they had been commanded not to eat. And by so doing, by by eating that forbidden fruit, they brought all mankind, all of their descendants, into an estate of sin and misery. They became slaves, not of God and of righteousness, but of sin and death. And all creation with them came under God's curse, bound to futility and corruption. This is not a fairy tale. This is the true history of mankind, and this is the world that we live in today. We today live in a world bound by futility and corruption, by sin and death. And whether or not we acknowledge these things to be true, we know them to be true by experience. We all know firsthand the the domineering power of sin. We all know too well the corruption of creation. Even this week, in innumerable ways, I have seen and grieved the still unfolding effects of our parents' Rebellion. I've attended funerals. I have counseled with those in distress. I have come alongside those who are hurting and broken. And I know that everyone here this morning could add your stories to mind until the record of misery grew beyond comprehension. This is the world we live in. As Pascal said, we can at times divert our attention from the misery, but we cannot entirely escape it. And thus, we stand in need of redemption. We need a Savior, because we simply cannot save ourselves. The question is, is there any such Savior? Is there a redeemer? Is there one who can rescue us from the undeniable misery of sin and death? I want you to hear this morning that the Bible says that there is. No sooner had our first parents sinned against God by eating the forbidden fruit than God graciously promised to rescue them from the consequences of their rebellion through the seed of a woman. The seed of a woman would come and he would reconcile man to himself and he would crush the the head of the serpent. Not only would our guilt of, of 
the guilt of our sins be covered, but the misery of our sins would be undone. God would make all things new again. The original goodness of his creation would be restored. His kingdom would be reestablished on earth as it is in heaven. And his people would be set free from their slavery to sin. Again, to glorify and enjoy him as stewards of a new creation. All through the work of a redeemer. All through the seed of the woman. That's the story of Christmas. It is the birth of the Redeemer that we celebrate on December 25th. Jesus' birth is is celebrated as good news of great joy for all people because He is the only Redeemer of God's elect. He is the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed King, the promised Savior, the one who will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. He is the one upon whose shoulders will, be, will rest a government of peace that will never end. It is His throne that will establish justice and righteousness from sea to shining sea, from this time forth and forevermore. And so this Advent season, we are going to be considering the work of this Redeemer. We're going to be considering the goal of the redemption that He came to accomplish. We're going to be considering the nature of that redemption. We're going to be considering Him, the one who accomplished it. And we're going to be considering the condition upon which it is offered to us. And so this morning we begin with the goal. What was the goal of Jesus' coming? What was the goal of this redemption that he came to accomplish? And I, I suggest to you that we see it both in Paul's thanksgiving and in his petitions as they are set before us this morning. Let's begin with his thanksgiving in verses 3 through 8. Paul writes, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope that is laid up for you in heaven. Paul's prayer of of thanksgiving for the Colossians is in response to the report that he had heard about the Colossians, a report that he had received from Epaphras. We see this in verse 8. He he tells us that Epaphras had had come to him and made known to him the, the, the love that the Colossians had in the Spirit. And we know from verse 7 that it was Epaphras who had first preached the gospel to the Colossians. It seems that after a time of ministry there, he had returned to Paul in order to report to them the the fruit of the ministry that he had seen among them. And Paul's thanksgiving is his response to that missionary report. This is Paul's response to a missionary letter delivered in person by Epaphras. And that Paul gives thanks for what he hears tells us that the fruit that Epaphras saw among the Colossians was exactly the sort of fruit that he had hoped to see. In other words, the fruit that Epaphras saw and and reported was the goal that Paul had in mind. It was the goal at which he had been aiming, the goal at which he had sent out these men to, to preach the gospel. The fruit that Epaphras saw was the goal of redemption. 
So what is the fruit that Epaphras saw? What is this fruit that he reports to Paul? Well, Paul tells us in verses 4 and 5, again, beginning with verse 3. He says, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Why? Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope that is laid up for you in heaven. And so the fruit over which Paul rejoiced, the the fruit for which he gives thanks, the fruit which we may properly regard as the goal of redemption, is first the faith in Christ Jesus that the Colossians demonstrate, and second, the love for the saints that they show, both of which are rooted in the hope that is laid up for them in heaven. So faith in Christ Jesus and love for the saints, these are the goals of redemption. This is the life to which we have been saved. So so what do these things mean? What are these terms describing? What is this faith in Christ Jesus that Paul is talking about? It's it's language that we see throughout the New Testament. We are are constantly called on to to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, to to have faith in Him. But what does it mean to, to believe in Jesus Christ? I would suggest to you that when the, the, the New Testament authors use the language of faith, they, they really have a, a twofold reality in mind. First, it, it entails belief, which of course includes knowledge. They, they know something and they believe it to be true. So, what is it that they know? They know the gospel. They know the good news of God concerning His Son. This, of course, includes the the forgiveness of our sins. It includes the fact that our guilt can be covered, that the the record of debt which stood against us has been nailed to the cross. It includes the good news of, of forgiveness and reconciliation, but it includes more than this. It includes the entire good news of the kingdom. The good news that Jesus Christ is putting the world right and making us heirs of that renewed creation. This is what Jesus Christ came to do. He didn't come simply that we might be forgiven for our sins. He came that we might be forgiven for our sins and as such made heirs of the kingdom that he intends to establish on earth. The world we live in now is a world where darkness has dominion. It's a dominion that has been broken. Satan has been bound. He has been defeated, but he has not yet been entirely removed. And so we look forward to a day when his presence and his power and and all of the corruption that he brings with him will be entirely removed. When when the sinfulness in our own hearts that resonates with his purposes and plans will be entirely mortified, entirely eradicated. When all things will be made new. When the original goodness of creation will be restored. And when we believe in Jesus Christ, we are believing that he is the Christ, the Messiah, the the Savior who has come to accomplish this eternal purpose of our God. This is what it means to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. To believe that he is the Christ of the good news, the gospel of the coming kingdom of God. But faith is not merely an intellectual knowledge or assent of these truths, but rather it is a a personal trusting and resting in these truths. It It is confessing Christ as your rightful Lord, bowing to Him and trusting Him for your own salvation, trusting that through His work, 
You who are justly condemned, you who deserve only God's wrath, will now receive His blessing. Not because you have earned it, but because He has earned it for you. Because He has purchased your blessing with His own precious blood. This is what it means to to believe in Jesus, to receive and to rest upon Him, to receive the, the truths taught about Him in Scripture, and then to rest in those truths for your own salvation and eternal life. And this is the first fruit of the Gospel. This is the first fruit that, the, that, that Christ came to see as a people brought to faith in Him. A people who would acknowledge Him. Previously, in Adam, we did not acknowledge God as God or give Him thanks. But now, in Christ, our eyes have been opened, our hearts have been softened, and we have been given the gift of faith. That we might know God for who He is, that we might know Christ for who He is, and that we might acknowledge Him as our Lord, and as the Savior who brings us to the Father in the power of the Spirit. So faith is the first fruit of the Gospel, but it's not the only fruit. The the second fruit that Paul mentions here is a love for the saints. And this makes sense. Think about it. When we come under the Lordship of Christ, when we begin to acknowledge Him as our new and rightful King, our entire lives are necessarily transformed. If we have come to see life in the kingdom as salvation, then we will no longer want to live as citizens of the kingdom of darkness. After beholding the the beauty of Christ and tasting the goodness of His peace, We will sincerely and earnestly want to live as citizens of His kingdom. Yes, we will struggle because we are still sinners living in a a fallen world. Because the world, the flesh, and, and the devil continue to wage war against our souls. We will struggle to live as citizens of the kingdom. We will often fall on our faces. But we will struggle. We will strive to walk in new obedience. Not because we must in order to earn our salvation, but because obedience is the very substance of our salvation. Obedience is life. Obedience is health. Obedience is life as it is supposed to be. God's law is the blueprint for His shalom, for the peace that Christ promises to bring. And obedience to His law, that that obedience that brings peace, is simply another word for love. For it is God's law that shows us how to love, that shows us how to love our neighbor well. And therefore, when we walk in new obedience, we walk in love. When we obey God's law, we love our neighbor well. Well, And so faith and love are the fruit of redemption. They are the the goal of Christ's work. This is why Paul says that, that faith and love are rooted in the hope laid up for us in heaven. It's interesting here. Paul is not using the language of of hope subjectively. It's it's not something that we uh, experience. It's not our own hopefulness, but rather he's, he's speaking of hope as an object. Hope is the object for which we hope. 
It's what Peter elsewhere refers to as our indestructible, undefiled, unfading inheritance which is kept in heaven for us. It's what Paul says here is the hope laid up for us in heaven. Our faith is rooted in the hope, the hope that we have of of having an inheritance in the coming kingdom of God, of having a place at the the table of the the king in the new kingdom, of having a, a, a... a new role to play in the new heavens and the new earth. Our hope is what God has promised. What we know is coming through faith. And it is that hope that that sets us free then to walk in the footsteps of love that that allows us now to, to give ourselves away in the service of our neighbor's good. Because love is the foretaste of Jesus' goodness, which God gives us to sustain us as we wait. It is is selfishness that that cuts us off from our good. It is is the promise of God's goodness that we get a taste of. The the promise of the coming kingdom that we get a, a taste of when we walk in obedience here and now by loving our neighbor well. And so Paul's thanksgiving teaches us that the goal of Jesus' work, the the goal of his redemption, is a new life of faith and love which we will know perfectly in heaven, but which we can experience here and now at least in part through the power of the Holy Spirit as we walk in obedience to his law by loving our neighbor well. This is the goal of redemption. This is what your redemption is for. This is what he has saved you to. And we see much the same thing in in Paul's petitions. Look with me there, beginning at verse 9. Paul writes, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. And so having thanked God for their faith and love, Paul now effectively asks that that these things might abound more and more. He, He is asking first that they would be filled with the knowledge of His will. Now often when we use that language today, uh, speaking about the knowledge of God's will, people have in mind sort of God's secret plan for their life, who they're supposed to marry, where they're supposed to go to school, what job they're supposed to uh, uh, take. That's not the way that the New Testament uses that language. Rather, when the Bible speaks about God's will, either it means his decreed will, that which will come to pass because he works all things according to the counsel of his will, or it means his commanded will. It's what we see in, in 1 Thessalonians 4 when Paul says, This is the will of God for you, that you be holy, even as He is holy. It seems clear that here Paul is, is talking about God's commanded will. He, he's talking about that which God commands of us, that which He, he requires of us, that his, his law set forth in His commandments. And he's asking that the Colossians might be filled with a knowledge of God's will, that they might know thoroughly his blueprint for the life of love. But notice he doesn't ask simply that they would have 
knowledge. He, he wants them to know. He wants them to know what God requires. He wants them to have knowledge. But he adds to this a petition for spiritual wisdom and understanding. And you have to understand that for someone like Paul, for a, for a Jew who had grown up on the Old Testament scriptures, the idea of wisdom was, was correlated with the idea of, of skill. We see this, for example, in the, the, the account of the tabernacle. When we're told that there were skilled artists that would build the tabernacle, that the word that is used is wisdom. They had wisdom in linen, or they had wisdom in gold. They had wisdom in the, the various media that they would use to, to build the tabernacle. Wisdom is a skill. And the skill that Paul has in mind is the wisdom of godliness, the skill of living a godly life. You see, for Paul, knowledge of God's will is applied to the various circumstances in which we find ourselves through the skill of wisdom. God's law tells us not to, to steal. Wisdom, spiritual wisdom, tells us what that looks like in a modern economy. Wisdom is what allows us to apply God's will to the details of our various existence. And so Paul asked that they would have knowledge and that they would have wisdom. But not only would they have knowledge and wisdom, but finally he asked that they would be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for endurance and patience with joy. See, Paul knows that, that in and of themselves, they do not have the strength. Even if they know what to do, they will not be able to do it. He himself had experienced that. The good I want to do, I do not do, he said. It's not enough to have knowledge and wisdom, but they must also have strength. They must have the empowering strength of God that they might endure in this obedience. We can all, we can all obey for a time until it gets hard. It takes endurance when it gets hard. And Paul tells us that it will get hard. He, he tells us that we will require long-suffering to, to walk in good works. Jesus said the same thing when he, when he said that following him would require us to walk a narrow, hard way. We shouldn't be surprised when in this life we struggle to obey. We, we shouldn't be surprised when we find it difficult. The, the Bible tells us to expect such difficulties. Our own flesh wars against us we're opposed by the world and the devil who, who seeks to destroy us. But we do not labor alone. We labor in the immeasurable power of God that is at work in those who believe. And this is what Paul asks for, that, that God would not only fill them with knowledge, not only give them spiritual wisdom, but that He would strengthen them according to His glorious might. Not for a grudging obedience, but for a joyful obedience. For obedience with joy. Joy because we know that the hard way we've been called to walk is the way of life. Joy because we know that the narrow way is the good way. Joy because we know that obedience is actually a foretaste of heaven. And so we see that Paul's prayer, his, his petitions are aimed at the same life of faith and love for which he previously gave thanks. This new life of faith and love, this new life of obedience is the goal of your redemption. 
It is what Jesus came to save you to. The eternal Son of God became flesh. He was born as a baby in Bethlehem so that God's people might walk in newness of life, so that they might have a life of faith and love, so that they might be set free from the misery of sin and death and be restored to the life of the age to come. So let me ask you, what is it that you want for Christmas? I usually think of that question for children, and I encourage the children to to think about it. What is it that you want for Christmas? But, But adults, I ask you the same. What is it that you want for Christmas? What is the greatest gift you could receive? What is it that would fill your heart with joy and and give you the satisfaction that your soul so desperately craves? Paul says the greatest gift any of us could receive, the gift that Jesus came to give, is spiritual knowledge, wisdom, and strength to walk in a new life of faith and love rooted in the hope that is ours through his death and resurrection, rooted in the hope that one day we will abide with him in the new heavens and the new earth without the defilement of sin for all eternity. And therefore, this Advent season, I encourage us to join Paul in giving thanks for the faith and love that he has already given us acknowledging the the fruit of the Spirit already evident in our lives, but also earnestly praying, asking Him to carry on that good work to completion, asking Him to to fill us with the knowledge of His will and all spiritual wisdom and strength, that we may be able to patiently endure in loving obedience with joy until that day when our salvation is complete. After all, this is the goal of our redemption. And this is why we call this good news. Do you believe that? Amen. Let us believe it together. Father God, we rejoice in your goodness to us. We rejoice that you came not only to save us from the guilt of our sin, but you came to save us from its misery. You came to save us from its corruption. You came to save us from its pollution. And you came to bring us renewed into a new heavens and a new earth where we will be perfectly able to glorify and enjoy you for all eternity. Father God, may we long for that day and may we taste it even now as by the power of your spirit we walk in obedience to your word to the best of our ability and to the praise of your glorious grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.